Say goodbye to manually recording hours and chasing down late payments. With LawPay Pro, a new solution from LawPay, you can reclaim billable hours and get paid faster with all the billing and invoicing features you need in one easy to use tool. Plus, plans start as low as $19 per month per user. In the words of a LawPay Pro test user, with these features at this price, purchasing LawPay Pro was a no-brainer. Discover why there are so many reasons to love LawPay Pro at lawpay.com slash dcbar. Hello, this is the DC Bar's Brief Encounters. I am Jill Morrison, and I'm here with Zilly Moore, the newest member of the DC Bar's international law community. She has graciously agreed to join the Immigration and Human Rights Subcommittee as my vice chair, and she brings a wealth of experience that well qualifies her for this position. As a way to introduce Zilly to the community, I thought I'd chat with her a bit about some hot topics in human rights and perhaps get a sneak preview of her plans for our subcommittee. So welcome to the international law community of the DC Bar. Thank you. So you reached out to me and another member of our subcommunity because you wanted to get involved in the bar. I'm thrilled to have you join us, and I look forward to some great programming for our bar year. What do you see as some of the more pressing issues that you see on the horizon regarding human rights? Thank you for the opportunity, and thank you for this question. And I think one of the things that would be really fascinating, and we can talk about this later as well, is to hear from members what they see as well as some of these key issues, both on the horizon and as emerging. You know, from from my perch, where I work now in sort of this democracy, human rights, rule of law place, one of the big things, of course, that we're looking at is sort of slipping democratic principles. We now live in a context where 72% of the world population live in autocracies. You know, we have more autocracies than liberal democracies today. This is the first time since sort of that big democratization wave of the late 80s and early 90s. So, of course, that affects in many ways a lot of the human rights protections, the multilateral system, the international law context in which all of us work and operate. And very much related to that is the fact that with these institutions eroding, and sometimes the protest and, and the, the feeling that these institutions are not delivering on what they were supposed to deliver are very legitimate, but as they erode, that means that they're actually becoming less responsive to people's needs and priorities. And so we see the kind of human rights that many of us are engaged in around women's rights, around housing, education, jobs, of course, the climate crisis, all of those things are not handled right in a way that would better respond to our needs as, as a population. So that's kind of a big, I guess, overall systemic issue that we're in the context of that really affects how we look at it. And I would just add two more things. One is around, and again, somewhat related, around this wave of information manipulation and AI that we all are trying to grapple with and how do we really address information integrity? How do we really sort of try to get at regulating or addressing or, you know, otherwise grappling with that. And, you know, I know we'll, we'll talk more about it in a minute. And then lastly, this notion around 
you know, really sustainable investment and, and development. And that touches on issues around land rights and natural resources, again, takes us to some of the climate emergency things that we're seeing, and sort of generally tying it back to really the management and governance systems that we have or don't have around dealing with resources and people. Great. What I really appreciate about those answers is that it grounds it in the reality of people's day-to-day lives. Very often when you hear kind of international law or human rights, it's seen as this kind of very murky thing that has no impact on how people are living in their day-to-day. And I think your answer really brought it home that this is the stuff that really matters and impacts how people are walking out the door and what they're encountering. So for some of the students who are out there who might be interested in international law and human rights, what are some of the ways that you've used those particular skills around those areas in your work? And if you could share some of the highlights or your favorite memorable projects that you've worked on over the years. So, you know, international law often seems like this very murky and opaque body of law. And, you know, when I went to law school, I was lucky to have gone to Georgetown Law that has a very robust international law program. But at the time, when I was looking at different schools, many others really didn't. And I think we've come a long way in kind of understanding what it is and what encompasses. But in terms of, you know, kind of what you do with it (laughs) once you graduate, you know, I've, I've kind of seen four paths and I've tried to work a little bit in each one of these paths that really works or employs international law, right? One is kind of the litigation or advising on enforcement or challenging or bringing, you know, human rights to courts, whether here in the U.S. or regional or international bodies, that kind of more litigation avenue. And then there is, of course, advocacy around identifying violations, documenting them, trying to get accountability for them, not necessarily through litigation, but through other means, more political means. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there is, you know, pushing for legislative reforms that are informed by human rights. And then lastly, around norm formation and norm change. And that particular aspect has been really exciting to watch because while it's a very slow process, you know, being involved and some of the things that are coming now to fruition, for example, you may have heard that the right to development now has a draft treaty that is about to be submitted to the Human Rights Council at the UN General Assembly this month, later this month, and then it will kind of go down the process. And that would be a really interesting treaty, very different than kind of how other I think, approaches to international law, you know, get at, because this one is really more affirmative, right, around, you know, how do we deal with natural resource governance? How do we make sure there's equal opportunities given our current international economic order? You know, really getting at some of the really difficult issues that I think have gotten us in some ways to where we are. And that's very close, right, to being a real instrument of norm setting, And then similarly, of course, the business and human rights binding instrument, right, is kind of in its latest iteration. True, it's been going back and forth for about 10 years, but that, again, is very close and very close to getting at some of the activities of transnational corporations and business enterprises, right, and how we deal with that big kind of body of issues. And then, you know, really interesting work around trying to address issues of you know, crimes of aggression and things of that nature. 
but bringing it more kind of specifically to some of the things that I've worked on and really enjoyed. I mean, one of my favorite experiences, I think more personally and professionally, has been working um, and being part of the fellowship that you run, Jill, the Women in Law and Public Policy Fellowship at Georgetown. And I was part of it when I was a clinical fellow with the International Human, Women's Human Rights Clinic at Georgetown. And one of the things that we were sort of taught as clinical fellows is to be, if you will, the guide on the side rather than the sage on the stage. And it's a maxim that I've really taken to heart in my more professional, once I left kind of the academic context, really taken to heart in the work that I've done being based in other countries and working with whether it was law students or political aspirants or, you know, other sort of actors within these sectors of, of rule of law and democracy. And so, you know, a lot of these things I'm really proud of by really bringing knowledge or, if you will, things that I thought were value adds to situations where maybe groups or people were not aware of. One of those things, actually, more domestically, a few years ago, I was based at UCLA as a visiting jurist, and I was connected to a group called Dignity Now, which works with formerly incarcerated people in the Los Angeles area. And they've been working for a while on this campaign to get a civilian oversight committee for the LA sheriff. And at the time, the U.S. was about to be reviewed by the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination at the United Nations, right? And there is a convention, right, that the U.S. has ratified. It's very clear on some of the obligations. And this is a group that was very much rooted in their community. I don't think they were you know, aware at the time that there is this other mechanism, right, way, way away in Geneva that might be of use to them. And, you know, we met and we talked about it, and they very quickly saw what could be gotten from it. And, you know, we're able to interview some of the people who, you know, were just come out of the jail system in LA, which by some has been labeled as kind of the biggest mental health institution in the world, right? Because a lot of people are jailed because of mental health issues rather than necessarily other things. And so there are various violations and aspects that were happening there that they were able to really gather from the people that they were serving. And we packaged it in a, in a report to this committee at the UN. And the committee really took interest in it. There was actually some really interesting media coverage of it in L.A., right, that this UN committee is taking note of what's happening in the L.A. jail and the county jail system. And again, this was not the reason why what happened next happened, but it was very much something that the group took on as an advocacy tool, as a way to sort of generate interest in other aspects and gain more supporters in different sectors. And a couple of years later, actually, I think it may have been the same year, there was actually a civilian oversight committee formed in Los Angeles. And it was something that obviously the, the UN committee really was interested in and looked at in that review. And that was just really interesting to see, right, how a very kind of localized group was able to draw on the international legal system for their own, you know, very, again, localized needs. And it's something that, you know, I was I was lucky to do in a lot of different contexts, you know, working in Jordan, just last example, 
was there with the American Bar Association, Rule of Law Initiative. And at the time, Jordan was about to be reviewed under the Universal Periodic Review, which is a peer review at the UN. And I was working with different law faculties, and we thought it might be interesting to get the students involved in this review. And so we, you know, we kind of created a whole curriculum around what it is, what it does, what did Jordan submit, what did other countries ask Jordan about. And then we had sort of this big public viewing of the actual session. And it was really interesting to see how students, and again, you know, this is not the most repressive context I've worked in, Jordan, but it's repressive enough that the students watching other governments and experts question their own members of government mm. on human rights issues, on illegal detention, on torture, you know, and all these very controversial issues was just so illuminating, right? To, to see that that can happen and their government officials had to respond. So, you know, I guess go on with more examples, but, you know, these kinds of things have been really gratifying, really, to be able to connect different communities to this global system in a way that can really, you know, kind of reinforce their own priorities. Yeah. I find the work in the United States especially exciting, in part because we don't really think about human rights as a tool here in the United States. It's something that, right, that's an international law thing, as opposed to in the United States, where we are so dependent on all of our statutory protections and presume that everything here is pretty okay, right? But as you proved in that example from working in California, and of course, as we both know, working in reproductive health rights and justice, everything here is actually not okay. So one of the things that I always kind of try to emphasize when I'm teaching reproductive justice specifically, as opposed to reproductive rights, is that it is based on a human rights framework, which requires some affirmative action by states. It's not our typical paradigm of privacy, where it's hands off. And sometimes it actually takes government action to effectuate rights, which is really mind blowing for a lot of my US based students. I'd love to hear your reflections on some of the ways we can elevate reproductive rights and actually call attention to the growing erosion of women's rights globally in applying some of these human rights concepts. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting, right? It feels a little bit like full circle. You know, my first job out of law school was at the Center for Reproductive Rights in New York in the international program. And so this is around 2000. And, you know, my colleagues in the domestic program of the center were getting ready to argue at the Supreme Court, the Stenberg v. Carhartt decision, the one that was argued in 2000 which was really at the time, right, this kind of landmark decision. It was brought on behalf of a doctor in Nebraska who said, you know, I, I can't give these services to the women in my state. And, you know, again, 5-4 decision, but it was interesting that it was decided in sort of two, right, independent grounds. One is that the ban on abortion there failed to include a health exception, and that it also banned essentially the most common method of second trimester abortion. And it was, I remember, a really important decision at the time. And then here we are now, <laughs> right, 23 years later, and we have about, what, 22 states that ban abortion or restrict it in a way that is even more extreme, right, and more restrictive than we saw back then. 
And so it's been a really, you know, kind of interesting to to see, right, sort of these these cycles of, you know, shrinking rights and, you know, in the international program at the time, working in different countries, you know, the, the biggest issues that we heard from our colleagues or partners there, a lot of women's lawyers associations who we would partner with in these countries, for example, in Ethiopia and Nepal, where we worked during that time, is that about a third of maternal mortality was because of unsafe abortion in both of those countries and how their women's lawyers associations and OBGYN associations, you know, it was very much the healthcare providers and the lawyers and activists coming together and saying, this is a matter of life and death. And were able to reform those laws and made sure that women could have access to that procedure. And that dropped the rate of maternal mortality to like barely one digit, right, from things like unsafe abortion, right? Ethiopia went from like, I remember 32% of maternal mortality due to unsafe abortion, you know, and of course, we're talking about glass and thorny branches and poisons and things that would cause women to bleed out and perforate organs, you know, sort of horrific things. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of decades later, unsafe abortion related death are around 1%, right? And, and similar in, in Nepal, it went down, you know, significantly, right? So it's, to me, just a really sort of interesting way to think about how we look at this discourse in the U.S., it's very limited in many ways. The way that we look at it within sort of the international context, it really is broader, right? It's about equality. It's about health. It's about development. It's about, you know, access to a set of indivisible rights for women. And as you said, just as I started out saying there is this backsliding in democratic principles, real erosion of democracies across the world, we see a twin trend, which is the erosion of women's rights. And there was a really powerful article uh, last year in Foreign Affairs called The Revenge of the Patriarchs, Why Autocrats Fear Women. And in it, Erica Chenowicz and Zoe Marx talked about how authoritarian leaders really have launched this simultaneous assault on women's rights and democracy, right? Really kind of seeing women's rights and women's movements as one of the biggest threats to their power. And there is a lot of research that shows that when women are part of movements, those movements tend to be more successful, longer lasting, more responsive to, to the needs of, of the communities and the people. So they are actually more successful, right? So that is a fear. If you want to make sure that there isn't a threat to your power, you really need to be doing both. So we, you know, in, in my work, we really are looking at both of those things together, this sort of what we call, you know, anti-gender liberal narrative. Some experts have been calling it this wave of the right against rights, right? I have a right against you all having rights and how to deal with that and how to get back to what principles and systems really do work in a way that's not a hollowed out democracy or a democracy where the rule of law is co-opted and perverted to actually take out the substantive rights. And it becomes about process without rights and without protections. So it's at least in sort of the global context, right? The U.S. is very much within the same wave for good or for bad. Yeah. And that very closely relates to my next question, which is, you know, 
in your work in promoting democracy globally, what are some of the barriers that you've identified to women's political participation and leadership? Right. And even thinking about women in politics, right? Like when we look at trends over the past 20 years, it's true that, you know, we often hear the the rate of women's participation in politics has doubled over the past 20 years, but it's only at like 30% global average, right? And in the U.S., it's now, I think, the Congress, it's about 28%. And that's like a record, right? Barely a quarter, but it's a record. So I think even when we talk about what has been progress, right, for women's political participation, it's something that, you know, I feel like we've on some level become accustomed to slow progress, right? It's this kind of need for incremental change, you know, but why? Why do we need incremental change? We know more and we know better now. You know, and that's true in incremental change around women's political participation or, you know, around racial justice or around ending wars or around dealing with climate change. But we know so much more and better now. You know, why are we still sort of hiding behind that? So with women's political participation, I guess I would identify two primary things, right? One is the fact that we still have globally, right? fundamental biases in some ways against women and what position they may or may not succeed in. And I don't know if you saw this gender survey that UNDP released just a couple of months ago. It's a global survey, and it made a lot of headlines, right? And one of those headlines was that almost nine out of 10 people, that's men and women worldwide, hold fundamental biases against women, yep. right? And that half of people globally still think that men would make better political leaders than women. Again, that's across the world. That doesn't depend on your region of the world, income level, the level of development, the culture, right? It's a global survey that really showed that we really are in terms of our sociocultural norms and biases, we're not there, right? So it's not surprising that we have you know, studies that say 131 years to close the gender gap, right? Not surprising. The other thing that is also a little bit related to one of the human rights issues we talked about in the beginning, which is around information manipulation and, you know, how do we regulate some of the platforms across which we all communicate is this violence against women and sort of tech facilitator gender-based violence. And Again, that is such a pervasive phenomena where I work, we've done surveys in different countries and different contexts, and it's overwhelmingly the majority of women that are surveyed, women who are in parliaments, women who are in different sort of political positions, report that they have been targeted online for abuse, for threats, for violence, and this online continuum to offline violence is something that we also see. And the outcome has been, and again, a lot of surveys bear that out, is that women have been withdrawing from political and public participation and kind of this public discourse square where those voices are actually very much needed, but because of this onslaught of abuse that they get, they've chosen, and again, choice used in, in a somewhat ironic way, to limit their participation. And the other aspect of it is that young women and new entrants to politics may decide that maybe this is not the field for me, 
right? If I have to be subjected to threats of rape and of my family, then that's not a context I want to be in. So the fact that there's only about 10% heads of governments and heads of states around the world should not be surprising, right? We keep seeing women heads of states stepping down and often saying part of it has been this kind of very negative conditions that they've had to face in a way that their male colleagues have not, right? So that's the key. There is a lot of abuse online, but the kind that women in politics have been getting is more frequent, it's more extreme, and it's very consequential in that it really chills their political participation. Right. And I actually recall your organization has a tool to address that, to kind of do some threat assessments. Would you mind speaking about that a bit? Sure. There, so I currently work for the National Democratic Institute for International Affairs, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit that works on democracy promotion globally, not in the U.S., but globally. And of course, what I say is my own views, not theirs. But it has developed multiple tools to deal with these kinds of issues and started under this campaign that they called hashtag not the cost. The idea there is that this kind of abuse should not be seen as the cost for women to enter and remain in politics. And so there's really a, a host of tools. One of them helps you kind of as, a, as an individual woman assess your level of risk and develop safety planning to, you know, sort of on an individual basis. There are tools around what to do within particular contexts, within particular countries. We have issued various proposals for interventions that would help end online violence against women or, or tech-facilitated gender-based violence. And so there is a plethora of tools and approaches to that. And in fact, the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression is writing currently a report she's about to submit to the UN General Assembly also this month on gender disinformation. And we were just giving her some inputs on what that is, what that looks like, and what can be done about it. Excellent. I always like to leave our listeners with some hope. <laughs> so I think that's a, a great note of hope. And finally, we would like to call on our members to reach out and express what might be of interest to them, because this is, after all, their community. So you're thinking about putting out a survey to members to canvas some interests and the issues that they would like to see in their programs or discussions, which I think is an absolutely great idea. So our members should be looking forward to that survey in their inboxes sometime soon. And please respond to it <laughs> so we can really hear from you and design things that would be of most use. Great. Thank you. It's a fantastic idea. Thank you so much for chatting with me. I have learned a lot from you and I hope our audience members have as well. And I look forward to having an exciting year of programming with you within our international law community. Likewise, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. This episode of Brief Encounters was brought to you in part by our sponsor, LawPay. Discover why there are so many reasons to love LawPay Pro at lawpay.com slash DCBar.